Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, if you're new with us, all of this is going to be on the screen, but we just finished up the Ten Commandments and we're starting this series entitled Ecclesia. If you know what that word looks like or sounds like, you've been in church for quite some time. If it's the first time you've seen that word and are surprised that I know how to pronounce it, it's because I've been in church for some time. Would you, with me, just take yourself back to the first time that you went to a church, your first experience, the first time you sat through singing where you were uh, participating in, or the first time you sat in a chair like this and you heard the pastor talk from the Bible, what was the first time or your first experience like? What did it sound like? What did you experience? What did you feel? For some of you, this was years ago. Years ago, for some of you, it's been this past year or these past couple months, and maybe for someone in this room or for some of us, today is the first time you've experienced church. I can still remember at least the first memory I have in the church that I went to. Um, We went to a inner city church on Brown Street. It was Akron Bible Church, still there to this day. And I can still remember my first, at least, memory of being in the building. I was probably three or four years old, and I was sitting off to the left with my mom at at the front row. My dad was the one who was giving the sermon that day. And I remember being as a young boy, and when you're in an inner city church, you know, we kind of just roll with it. And so I remember seeing my dad, and I wanted to go be with my dad on stage. And I remember feeling the urge to go with him, and he said, Michael, come on up here. And at this particular church, there was the podium, and then behind the podium was a pew. So I walked up, and I remember he sat me down at the pew, and I remember sitting like this, watching my dad preach, seeing all the people's faces just like this, and I remember being so intrigued, and just, I remember how the building smelled. We didn't have any AC. We were sweating it out with the squad uh, on a summer afternoon, and we didn't really know when church was going to end. It just ended when it ended. We didn't know who was going to come or what it was going to be like. But the only thing I remember next is I fell asleep. And then my dad, after the service, came up, shook and woke me up. And little did I know that would probably be a prophecy of how I would make people fall asleep when I was preaching. You know, there are things that you experience in church. I can remember when I started coming to this church I would ask questions, I would experience things. I remember myself going through a very difficult time and remember asking myself the question, is this for me? Is this for me or for someone else? Or how does this even help me? How does this pertain to me and should I go? You know, that's super popular right now to post something along the lines of this. Tell me you're a parent without saying what? You're a parent. Tell me uh, you do this without using the actual word. So I thought to start us off for this series, how you can tell someone you go to church without saying you go to church. And there's this first picture I have up on the screen of either an emergency room or a hospital or a hotel. These two things communicate about what their, their mission is, what they're going to do. You see, these are entirely different. When you show up to a hospital, there is the assumption you are in trouble. 
and they have one goal and mission. It is not their agenda. It is rather to help, to help you, minister to you, and get you out of the hospital better than when you came. When you go to a hotel, what are the assumptions when you come to the hotel? How will they serve me for what I am paying for? What are they going to do? And the next picture communicates kind of the same thing. Is it a rescue ship or a cruise ship? I mean, I've never been on either one, but the one with all the lights looks like somewhere I would want to go, right? It sounds like, man, I pay a certain amount of money, and then they're going to serve me. You go on cruise ships to get away from real life to take a vacation. Or the next picture you can pull up for me, is it a, a museum when you come to look at paintings or things that are done or art and to gaze upon it and to critique and say, this is what I think. And then I have a picture down here of just actually people here at Maranatha Bible Church. Which is the church supposed to be and what are they supposed to represent? Is it a hotel or is it a hospital? Is it a cruise ship or a rescue ship? Is it a country club? Or is it, you know, you, you fill in the blank. What do you think it is? Or this last picture of someone on a computer watching a service. Is that church? And is that what church is supposed to be or do? What are we even doing here? And for some of you, you've asked yourself the question, why, why would I take an hour out of my week to go and to sit and to listen for someone to talk Maybe it's not beneficial. Now what, I am, now what am I supposed to do? These are very crucial and critical questions that you should be asking or that I should be asking. And pull up the next slide with all these questions. In this series over the next four or five weeks, this is what we are trying to answer. What is the church? Who is the church for? Why go to church? What should happen at church? Is church only on Sunday? Is the church supposed to do? What are, we, what are we doing here and who leads the church? Do all these things matter? And if, depending on how you answer those questions, will determine your involvement or if you think any of this even matters at all. Or is it just something to check off the box and to make maybe yourself feel like God approves you or encourages you? You see, I kind of open a can of worms even asking all these questions because I'm not going to answer them all today, and you're going to be really confused on some part, but it's also a, a tag to hopefully you come back. But um, this next phrase or this quote is from uh, a theologian named Charles Ryrie, and what he does is he explains his definition of the church. When I first heard this definition of the church, I was in a class with Pastor Butch. I was 19 years old, and he gave the definition, and I remember still saying to him, and I said this past week, I don't like this definition. And this was probably a group of 50 people. He goes, oh, I didn't know that, Michael. What would you give better than Charles Ryrie, a great theologian of our day? How are you smarter than him about the church? I was like, uh, I don't know. But here's the definition. It's an assembly, which is simply a gathering of professing believers in Christ who have been baptized and who are organized to carry out God's will. It is made up of those who have trusted Christ from the day of Pentecost to the rapture. The reason I don't like the definition, but the reason I used it is because I don't like it because I feel like there is either so much more to be said, could be pages or books, but the, it also, I like it because it does give a specific answer to church. It is a, an assembly of professing believers who have been baptized, who are symbolizing their faith in Christ. They're organized. 
It's not just where some of you maybe would say, uh, where two or three are gathered, what? He, he's there. That's my church, maybe for you. But as we introduce this idea, before I even jump into Matthew 16, there's one thing I need to talk about, and I'm doing it as a rabbit trail on purpose to hopefully um, let you know that I know, is are these two words that I think everyone has experienced, is church hurt. When we talk about the church, all of you have experienced personally maybe a pastor has said something that maybe wasn't biblical and they, they hurt you. They made a, a decision that affected your family and it hurt you. For some of you, you're not involved in church anymore because they hurt you. They said things and it was Gandhi who said, I love your Christ, but what? I can't stand your Christians. They're so unlike Christ. And I want to, on the outset, before I even jump into this whole idea of church, to let you know that I know that we are not perfect. We have never intended to be perfect. It actually is a testimony that I'm talking right now as a pastor that uh, it's actually, you know, we are far from perfect. And we are imperfect people simply trying to show other beggars where to get bread. We're simply trying to say, hey, this is our mistakes, this is where we're going, and it does not excuse that it actually has happened. I want you to know that. And if Maranatha has hurt you or our pastors or our leaders, hopefully you would feel comfortable to come forward and say, hey, you said this and it hurt me, that you would feel I can approach him or approach her or approach this team or these pastors because that's never the intention, but it also is how the enemy attacks. Now, as we jump into this, I want to be very, very clear. Everyone has a church and everyone goes to a worship service. It might just not have the name church in it. Some people, when they go to church, it's with golf clubs and it's outside and it's a nice sunny day. That would be, as one man told me, Michael, I don't go to church. I go to play golf and that is my church. Is that church? And some people, when, maybe when they go fishing this afternoon on a nice Father's Day afternoon, that is their church, maybe where they feel they connect with God. For some people, it'll be in the fall Sunday around 1 o'clock when we will gather as a body of believers and watch the Browns win. That will be our church or your church. And for some, it's on the weekends in the evening at the bar. That's their church. It's where they go to worship. For a lot of guys I know, it's in the woods when hunting season kicks around. That's where they would say, that's my, what, church. That's how I connect. Do, can anyone, anyone worship God anywhere and call that a church? Well, whether you would agree with it or not, um, everyone worships and everyone is going to church. Church might not be in the name, right? It is, it is evident that all of us are created in the image of God and we are worshiping something or someone with other people. I mean, if you go to any sporting event, you can tell, man, they're worshiping. You went to Country Fest on Friday night and you're like, they're, they're worshiping, right? You can, you can see that. You're saying there is something inside of them going out. Now, here is this word. I want to introduce the word ecclesia. simply means this, called out ones. This word is used in the New Testament 116 times. 
simply in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only three times. Only three times. Why is all of this important, or why is this important? Because ecclesia did not necessarily have a religious meaning when it first was introduced or even used. They would use it in a political sense. You could have a Republican Party gathering as an ecclesia or a Democratic Party gathering as an ecclesia or when, you know, a sporting event, a high school team, a college team. It was simply a gathering of people. It was not used to define the meaning of what the people were actually doing until until Jesus introduces the idea of ecclesia, which is even better translated as called together, could be called together. Now, the church, to be very, very clear, is a people. The church is a people. It is not a building. It's not a business. It's not an organization. I mean, some of you drive by and you would say, we, we say as Americans, we go to what? Church. You're going to church. You sit in the building with a structure. You sit through all of the things that we go through. And you would say, I went to church that day, which I would use that term as well. But at its regular, normal uh, definition, it is a people, not a building. It is alive. It is active. It's not just an organization. It is us gathering together. And how, how, what makes someone a part of the church or how do you become a part of the church? It says in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are now a part of the church. Not because you went to a class, not because you signed a doctrinal statement, not because you were physically baptized, not because you walked an altar, not because you said a prayer, not because of anything you could do, but because of what Christ has done. And when you place your faith in him, you are now a part of the church. And whether you want to carry the the name or the title or not, you're on the team. Maybe on the team you might not always want to root for, but you're a part of the church. And I put Ephesians 5 there because I'm going to come back to it at the end. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is what Jesus is doing now. He's nourishing, he's cherishing, he's loving the church. Now, before I'm going to jump into Matthew 16, I promise, right after this. Some of you would say, man, and, and I've had people tell me this, I love Jesus, but what? I can't stand the church. Can't stand the church. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, all of you come over this afternoon for lunch to my house. We jam us in there in the basement. We're sweating it out. And um, one of you starts to have a conversation with me and my wife's. We're, we're cooking. We're grilling. And we sit down at the table and we start to have a conversation. And this would never happen. Just to let you know, there was someone who just told me. They said, Mike, you're just a lot. And I was kind of offended, but I knew it. And then they were like, but hope is just so warm. Just so, just we want to talk to her. And I'm like, what does that mean? So anyway, this would never happen. But for sake of illustration, you start to say, Mike, we love you. We think you're great. We love your preaching. We love how your work ethic. We think, we just, you start, Mike, we think you're great. You know, you're just saying all this stuff. And you're like, but we can't, we hate hope. We can't stand your wife. When we're around her, she's just annoying to us just bothers me all the time. 
Now, a few things would probably happen. I'd be coming over with an elbow, you know, and I'd be calling you all these names. But then I would start to show you the door, and I would say, you're just, you're not welcome here. If you don't like my wife and you don't love my wife, we can't be friends. We, we just can't. It's never going to work. And it is the exact same way with Jesus. You cannot love Jesus and hate his bride. It is who he loves, cherishes, and died for. You can have issues with the church, but you can't divorce the two. If you say you love Jesus and behind the cross is the body of Christ, you got to say that's coming with it, and I'm taking him with it. So let's jump in. I'm going to speed fire through this in Matthew 16, verse 13. Um, the question to set up the question Now, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? What a question. Who do people say that he is? What's the vibe? What's the word on the block? What are the comments, and what are they saying about him? This location is 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. They just, in Matthew 16, went through. Jesus put a spiritual butt whooping on them in some teaching because uh, the disciples started saying, how are you going to provide for us, God? And he was like, did you guys forget about the bread? The fish? He's like, did you guys forget? I didn't do it once, I did it twice. And they're like, but how are we going to eat? Right, And he's correcting them, he's teaching them, and, they, and then he asks the question, because sometimes you'll ask a question to set up a question, won't you? Jesus was asked 307 questions. He asked 183 questions, and only three of the, or seven of them got answered. Questions are the way to teach sometimes, right? Which is kind of the sub-point to this. Why? Why are questions so impactful when you're trying to help people see something? Parents, you do this all the time. You do this all the time. You'll want to know something, and you'll ask your son or daughter, hey, who was there? You don't want to know who was there. You want to know if so-and-so was there, what you were doing. You'll say, well, who else is going? You'll ask a question to get to the question. I asked permission from my wife to share this. She has a question that sets up a question. It's terrible. I'll come home, or I'll come into the room, and this is what she'll say. Babe, yeah? I have a question. I respond, how much? Because I know she is not asking a question. She wants to buy something or pay for something, and I don't want to know the mission statement behind a lamp. I just want to know how much the lamp costs. I don't want to know the mission statement behind the stuff we need in the basement. Just tell me how much, and you see it through. It's a question that sets up a question because Jesus is asking them, what is the word on the block? What are people saying? And then in verse 14, verse 14, the right answer. And they say, some say John the Baptist. Man, if you want to get an answer right, just bring up a Baptist. Right? Just bring up a Baptist. Maybe that was too mean. I don't know. But anyway, you, if you want to, they're bringing up John the Baptist. They're bringing up the starting five, right, or four. They're saying Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. Other one of the prophets. People, this is what they're saying, Well, why would Jesus care what other people are saying? Why would he be so influenced about they or some? Because he's trying to determine something for them. He is setting them up, in a sense, on the tee. He's getting them right to where he wants them to be. You know, if you've been in any kind of counseling or taught counseling, you don't always just give the answer to the person. 
parents, you would know you're asking a question to help them see something that they need to realize on their own. And why? Why? You can pull up this next slide for me. The de- why is the decision by the crowd, or the decision by the crowd can't be the reason you make any decision? You c- it can't be. It's, I mean, in politics, they would use the phrase, what? Collectively, people are dumb, and individually, people are smart. Because collectively, some people will just follow the crowd. They'll just follow the next decision or the next phrase. or Whatever the crowd is doing, people will make crowd decisions. And Jesus doesn't want them to make a crowd decision. He's asking them a question. And in John chapter 6, Jesus had this conversation with Peter. And he is saying, hey, do you want to go with the crowd? And Peter says what? You have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? For or against, we can't make any decision based off a crowd decision, what they say or what some say, and it is very easy to be influenced by they or some. Whether it's influential leaders or pastors or teachers, it's just easy to be caught in the vein of, well, that's what they said. And my third point is in verse 15, what Jesus wants to know. He said to them, but who do you say that I am. Sometimes when Jesus will take the generic and he'll ask about things going on and then he'll punch it right back at you and say, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? What, what do you say? And it was C.S. Lewis who said, you got to put Jesus in three categories. He's either a lunatic, he's crazy, he's, he's insane, he's a liar, everything he said was false, or he's Lord. If he, you have to put him in one of those categories, and if he's not Lord, what are we doing here? We got better stuff to do on Father's Day. If Jesus is not Lord, why would he ask himself this question? So the question you and I have to ask is, who do you say Jesus is? Because how you answer this question puts in the balance eternity. If you reject or receive, and you cannot, no matter how bad you want to, you can't stand neutral. You can't. By standing neutral, you reject. You either receive or reject him. In number four in verse 16, the response Jesus wants. Simon Peter, oh man, I, I wish we had more time. I love Simon Peter. I don't know if you know much about the Bible, but Simon Peter is my guy. I just, I resonate with him. Why? Because he makes bonehead mistakes just like you and I. He's impetuous. He's impulsive. He says things before he should. Like when he says things, I'm like, yeah, me too. You know, and, he, and then he'll, he's bold, but he's, you know, he's back and forth. He experiences great things for God. Peter stands up, the, the leader, and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the answer. Who are you? And in chapter 14, verse 33, it was the first time the disciples collectively said they worshiped him and said, you are the son of God. This is the first time in the Bible that an individual said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You see, this is the response that Jesus wants for you and wants for me. A lot of times we'll want to examine and explore and ask questions, and Jesus invites those questions, but this is the question he wants 
from you. This is the answer he wants. He wants to talk about this, and he says that you didn't see this on your own, but God actually gave you the eyes to see, and God is the one who is initiating salvation and sending his son to die on the cross. You can't save yourself. The Father has revealed this to you. You can't take credit for your salvation or confession. And number five, just because it's going to take some time to explain this, how Jesus will build his ecclesia or his church or his called out one. And he says, I tell you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to read the whole thing. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This would take, I I thought about it, I could have just done more lecture and just talked about these verses for 40 minutes and bore you to death. Some of you would have fallen asleep. Here's what I would like to say. There is books, sermons, YouTube videos on this, commentaries. There are two things that need to take place when preaching is happening. It is the pastor's responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth. It is the the people listening, as it says in Acts 17, to be Bereans and examine if what is being said is true. So if you disagree with what is said, I would just say you should study or look into more on this. So how is he going to build his church? This is widely debated between Christians and Catholics. This is where we would divide. This is one of the most debated passages in the New Testament. Why? Is the church built on Peter himself, or is it built on the confession that Peter is making? And there's a few other, but for sake of time, I'll stick with those two. I don't know any Greek. Barely could pass my master's in Bible, so I had to talk with Butch and research and look into these things. So I just want to let you know, I'm not like some big Greek master guy, original text. But um, the word Peter, his name is meaning rock, and it's Petros. It's a, it's a feminine or masculine form of his name. He says, you, Peter, or Petros, and on this rock, which is referring to Petra, it's a, Peter, you're a little rock, and I'm going to build my church on a massive rock. On this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Why is this important? Is our faith built on men or on God who is man, Jesus Christ? If it's built on a man, right, it says in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 3 that you can't build on wood, hay, straw, or stubble that Apollos watered, Paul planted, but it is God who gives the growth. This passage is significant as well because it says in Matthew 23, 13, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you shut the kingdom in people's faces because you demand religion from them. He's telling Peter, you're opening the gates of the kingdom. What does that mean? Peter is the first person in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 8 and 10, where he preaches the gospel and thousands are saved. What you preach on earth, what you bind on earth will be shown in heaven. Our faith is not built on Peter, and I want to tell you why, and here's why I think this is important. Five verses later, if you look down in your Bible, in verse 23, What does Jesus call Peter? Satan. Now, I think Peter's really cool, and I like Peter, but if you get called Satan in the same conversation, you're probably not that significant, right? 
later on, right, later on in John uh, 18, Peter, what does he do? He denies Jesus three times. And then uh, later on, Peter, when they're trying to take Jesus from Peter, what does Peter do? He takes out a knife and he cuts the guy's ear off. The church is built on the foundation, it says in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of apostles and prophets with Jesus being the cornerstone. He is where our hope is fixed. And here is what blows my mind. This is why I couldn't sleep last night. This is why I'm like losing my mind in the first hour because of this reason. God decides, decides to use people like you and I to accomplish the advancement of his church, his body, you and I. And we ain't got much going for us, right? I mean, when you, when you look around, you're like, we don't have that much talent. We don't have that much wisdom we don't have that much skill. You're looking at Peter and you're like, Peter's your pick? Peter? Look at him. I mean, the culture would know Peter's a screw up. They would know he can't answer the right questions. They would know and God says, no, no, no. The reason I use boneheads like that is because it displays how great I am. That God decides to say, I will use imperfect men and women to accomplish his purposes through my life. And that roused me up. That gets me amped up because at the end of the day, people will have to say, man, how did, how did God do that through someone so insignificant? How did God take something that is insufficient and accomplish something? The church will not, will not be built on pastors. It's not going to advance because of missionaries or evangelists or church planners or worship leaders. The church is not built on that. Jesus says what? I will build my church. He will. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you look at church history and you look at the disciples, you're kind of like, these guys are some scrubs. They don't have it all together. They're not that smart. God takes ordinary men. And then you look at the dark ages. The reason they're dark is because as churches, we hide from them. You look at the Reformation, the church 500 years ago, what a mess it was in. And then there's always people like, I wonder what's going to happen. And then even like 18 months ago when COVID started happening, we're like, oh, will church make it out? I wonder if people will get saved. Right? We're, we're scared. We're, we're scared. And we forget that Jesus says, no, I will build my church. Not you. And, and Satan, here's what's so crazy. Think about this. When Jesus looks at Peter and says, upon your confession, I will build my church. Satan, or as Peter starts to talk in verse 23, he says, get behind me, Satan. When God has a plan for you and your future, so does Satan. So does Satan. He says, I, it's even John 10.10, he says, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Even for you and how you think about church. So two questions as we wrap this up. The first one is this. Are you serving the church? Or the opposite could be, or does the church exist to serve you? <clears throat> Hopefully when you come, you feel fed by the word of God. You feel like there are opportunities for you to serve. You feel a family in a sense. You feel like there are people that you can connect with to God and with each other. But Jesus died for the church and has a plan for the future of the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Are you serving the church? Is this a 
hotel or is this a hospital? When you come, what do you expect to experience? And lastly, because I have to, are you a member of the church? And I am not asking if you sat through orientation. I'm not asking if you went to the class or if you went on a missions trip. I'm not asking any of those questions, right? You know the phrase, just because you're in a garage doesn't make you what? A car, right? It says in Acts 20 when Jesus, or Paul is talking about the church, he says, which Jesus obtained with his own blood. When Jesus died on the cross and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sin, we talked about in John 1.12, when you receive Christ as Savior, when you accept him at, into your heart as your Lord and Savior, you are now bought by the blood of Christ. You are forgiven, freely, forever redeemed, and you have a future with him. You cannot, you cannot become a member of a church or member of the capital C universal church unless, unless you have been bought by the blood. You have to be forgiven. You cannot earn any kind of merit with God by coming to church, listening to church, going to, sitting in, being a part of. You can't earn any merit or forgiveness from God unless unless you have been bought by the blood. With our words, often, we express or we will say things that will prove or show that there is separation between us and God. That it will just, it will reveal that, that, that there's a problem going on. And with our words, it often, if we cry out to God, it doesn't bring separation, but it brings salvation. That if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Based upon being bought by the blood. Jesus has a plan for his church. He has a plan for you. And you want to make sure you are a part of the church. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for how good you are to us. God, I pray that for us as a church, as Maranatha Bible Church, which is a part of the universal church, God, I pray that we would never be guilty, never be guilty of shutting the door of the kingdom in people's faces. God, that we would be a church that has wide open doors and our church would be built upon the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Lord, I pray that for Anyone in this room who's never received or confessed Christ as Savior, that you would put it in their heart to make that decision today. And God, also for those of us who've maybe had a weird misunderstanding or an opinion of church that's off, I pray that you would help us to prioritize the church as living and an active thing to take part in, God. We pray for wisdom, we pray for just eyes to see, to be a church, to be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever you put us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.